How's it going, everybody? This is Andy Morales, and welcome to episode number three of Unraveled Influence, season number eight. And my guest today is the author of High Water, Carrie Carter. How are you? Hello, I'm happy to be here. So grateful that you have made the time for me and welcomed me onto your show. I'm looking forward to talking about poetry and inspiration and everything with you. Awesome, awesome. So um, I always ask this to everybody, so here it goes. Uh, <laughs> for those who listen to the podcast, they know like I always ask this question. So how did poetry and writing all start for you? Oh, that's a wonderful question. Um, and I would would actually tell you it, it all it, it, I was born a poet. I would essentially tell you that. And one of the stories that I will tell people, um, and I don't know if everybody can kind of put themselves back to when we were literally all first learning how, to read. And at least in my case, in my little classrooms that I was in as a preschooler and kindergartner, we had that that strip of the alphabet going kind of on, at the top of the wall along the ceiling with like the capital A and the lowercase A and the capital B and the lowercase B. Um, and my story is that I hated it. I absolutely hated it. It was all in this sort of perfect order and it was so sort of streamlined and and, and, and so just, I don't know, rigid to me somehow as this, this little girl. Um, and it was my parents um, are both avid readers. And so I grew up with dozens and dozens of books in my home. And I was constantly pulling them off the shelf to look at them at that point. Um, and it so happened that I pulled an E.E. E. Cummings book off of the shelf one day. And I think anyone who knows poetry can probably almost instantly get a visual image of what an E.E. E. Cummings poet poem would look like, because it has that really abstract, you know, look to it so often where he was kind of putting different characters on the page in really different places. And it was the first time as a little kid that I liked the way the alphabet looked. I liked the idea of it being in that very abstract visual form. I liked the idea that I could put the letters wherever I wanted to on the page. And as this tiny little little kid, that was really the first time that I started to click with the idea of reading and writing was, oh, I don't have to, to line all my letters up perfectly in a row. I can, I can change them a little bit. I can make them more sort of abstract. I guess I'm saying I could break the rules, you know, that price says a lot about me. But, um, but that's really almost my poet origin story right there was this, was this little girl you know, being frustrated with just that sort of rigid visual image of the the strip of the alphabet and finally getting to see it in this very freeform way. It was very liberating for me. Wow, so. that's awesome. And it's interesting, right? Because I, I actually know what you're talking about me growing up, like in preschool, you know, like going to school and everything. Mm -hmm. And there's the alphabet on the, t it, it, in my case, I don't know if this was everybody know for me, it was always on top of the blackboard or the green board. Yep. And it had yep. the A, lowercase. I know exactly yeah. what you're talking about. I hated about. it. <laughs> yes, I hated it. It was so just rigid to me as this little kid. And I wanted to play, you know, I wanted to, I wanted to be playing with stuff. Stuff, you know, and and when I saw that E. E. Cummings book and saw that that really weird way that that he writes his poetry, I was like, oh wait, you mean I can put the words on the page in, in different orders? Wow! Um, and that was how I essentially started writing writing poetry. Um, wow. And that actually, and once um, I would go back to that book over and over again and look at it. And so my parents actually bought me. Actually, it's funny. That's the one book I didn't pull, although it's right back here on my shelf. Um, they bought me a little children's book um, and would start reading poetry to me then once they figured out, you know, because I was constantly going and looking at that E.E. E. Cummings book. And so they would read poetry to me. Um, and there's a very famous children's poem, The Jabberwocky. Do you know this poem at all? Um, yes and no. I think I've yeah. heard of it, but I never actually know it. No. Yeah, it's um, and I and I'll just for the sake of making sure the the audience also knows, I'll just recite. I have it memorized. It's a wonderful, wonderful nice. poem. And to the audience, if you don't know it, I encourage you, especially for the poets. And it starts out, 
it's a it's essentially a nonsense poem the words are not real most of them and so it starts out with twas brilling and the slithy toves did gyre and gimble in the wave all mimsy were the borough groves and the mumraths outgrave and so it goes on like that and it's this sort of nonsensical words that does ultimately tell a story about the sort of dragon-like creature that um you know essentially gets killed by a prince which i realize is kind of very morbid but but um i remember vividly my mom and dad reading that poem to me over and over and over again as a little kid and so i think that was probably another layer of that poetry was really this place where i could kind of play and be creative and be imaginative and explore um and that actually was the first poem i ever memorized as i as i kind of got older and started to think through the idea of memorizing um poems and i'm terrible with memorization to this day that's not something mm. i'm great at but but that poem um that poem sticks with me and and i think again those layers of how much poetry is just this really this place where i can really be creative and explore wow that no that's phenomenal and it's interesting right because how something could get inspired and then how like in your case it all started from an alphabet and an e cummies book and then all of a sudden oh mm -hmm. now i'm writing poetry so i have to ask this is probably the weirdest question because uh i, I i'm not gonna lie to you i wasn't expecting like the whole alphabet thing. what was <laughs> it exactly that bothered you was it the, the way it looked is it the fact that it was on top of the blackboard like what, what was it that really irked you about the the alphabets on top of the uh and the alphabets yeah that's a great question and i have to i have to unfortunately say i'm not sure that i can really remember the exact thing that bothered me but like i said what i remember um i don't know it was just, something about it just felt so sort of like like rigid and and um I don't know. Just it was very, it was very rigid. It was very formal. It was very sort of strict, you know, almost just kind of lined up all in a row um, right there. And it, it, it really kind of, you know, you know. I mean, you know, when you're a little kid, you want to, you know, kind of run around and be wild and crazy because yeah. you got all that energy. You know what I mean? Um, and I think it just kind of something about the visual of it being that sort of strict thing like that, um, all lined up, kind of reminded me of like every time that you know the teachers or your family tell you to like sit up straight and behave yeah, and, you yeah. know yeah yeah and so i think as a little kid i just kind of was like that's where it all starts that's where you know they, they tell me to <laughs> to sit up and mind what's the phrase mind your p's and q's i guess that uh, you know, yeah mind you you, yeah because you couldn't yeah because you couldn't tell a child mind your business you could say mind yeah. your p's and q's or oh look at you yeah. being a nosy body like it was always one of those yeah. things Oh my God! See, like I, I, all right, because I'm technically Hispanic, so my parents mm -hmm. did not have any filters, so they would literally say yep. "mind your business" or "mind your effing business," <laughs> yep. or you know, or in Spanish they hi, so I'll like leave that alone. Like it was always that kind of stuff, and it was just like, oh my God! Like why is this so? Why is he so aggressive with it? Yep. And they <laughs> gaslit the crap out of me, and they like, oh, you think we like this? I'm like, well, I think you too. Like I don't know. <laughs> Oh it's funny, isn't it? As like adults, and I do. I don't have any children. Do you have children yourself? Um, I have a four-year-old, so I'm actually the last yes. in my family to have a um child. Everybody else, their kids are grown already. My son is four. Um, he's um semi-autistic, so it's um he's on, well, he's on the spectrum, so that that's yeah. where it's at right now. But I've learned so much about myself through my child. It's like oh it's yeah, interesting. I was like, wow, yeah. okay. 
Yeah, I ha so I don't have any kids, but the stories that so many of my you know friends tell with their kids of kind of trying to figure out how to not fall back on some of the like because I said so things that you know that is mm -hmm. such an instinctive thing for for parents to say you know the you know my 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 friends who just say you know well I want to give them a reason I don't want to do the same thing that my parents did where they yeah. said well because they said so. It's yes. hard. That struggle is real because it's mm -hmm. like. Uh, cause if I say, oh, cause I said so, it's more like no, I shouldn't say, it cause I know how that felt like. You didn't give me a yeah. real reason, so you just like, oh, cause I said so, and that's it. And I'm just like, oh, but I don't want to say that. So, um, I guess lucky for me, I I don't have that problem yet, cause um, again, like my son's like on the autism spectrum, so yeah. there's certain things I have to be a little bit more sensitive about that, and opposed yep. to someone that doesn't have that. So that I, I guess that's the benefit of that. Like it, it teaches you to be patient, and it, it is Absolutely. hard. It is hard, cause when he throws temper tantrums and he can't speak, cause that's really what yep. it is. They don't know how to vocalize. Yeah like yep. on a like the way like a normal child would be so it's like yep. oh, i have to be patient because he he's he's not mad that he can't do that he's just frustrated because he can't say or yeah. say what he's feeling yeah. so i get it so it's like yeah uh, he's, and he's not he's not mad at you he's just really is he verbal at all or or um he's semi-verbal it's still yeah. kind of like you know he can say little things here and there but it, it sounds kind of like I know what he's saying and my wife knows what she's what he's saying. But at times it does sound a little bit gibberish at times. But somehow my wife understands everything. I'm like, of wait, what did, what did he yep. say? Like, oh, OK. So I guess. Yep, yeah, of course. I'm like, I don't speak gibberish, baby. I'm sorry. Like, <laughs> yep. I completely get that. And of course your wife absolutely understands. That's, you know, that's mom's talent, right? She's, yes. she's completely figured, figured that out. I'm good. I'm super happy to hear though, that you guys have ways that you can communicate with. And that's such a struggle for, for so many parents to, to have to deal with that. And to, and like you said, to have that patience and to really adapt your understanding of how to communicate and to yeah. really adapt it, to recognize what he's saying, when he's saying it, what he means, um, and I think it, you know, do you find at all that your interest in poetry is something that can help you, that your interest in understanding sort of different ways of communicating and, and, and understanding maybe symbolism and, and stuff like that. Do you find that's able to help you communicate with him at all? A little bit. Yeah. Because, you know, it's interesting because the way I started poetry, my father was always in a room writing. Right. So, you know, he, he yeah. would compose Spanish music and stuff and, you know, little indie artists that he would get some kind of royalties for it or whatever the case. N nothing too crazy, especially back in the 90s. Like royalties were a little bit different than how it is today where you got SoundCloud and all this. But um, yeah. Um, the way I uh, discovered poetry for me, it was more like, oh, I used to see my dad always writing all the time. I didn't know what he was writing at the time, but I, I was like, oh, what you doing? He's like, oh, it's, it's poetry. I was like, oh, okay. You know, they call it poemas. That's how you say it in Spanish. And I was like, oh, okay. Yes. And then I don't know what it was, but the curiosity made me pick up a pen and I just started writing thoughts down because in school they teach you, oh, when you don't know what to write, like whether it's like an English class or whatever, they say, oh, just start writing whatever until something comes up. So somehow that always came to mind. And then I would just um, I'm like, OK, cool. So I decided just pick up a pen and start writing. And little by little, all these thoughts that I didn't really know existed. Yeah. Came out. Even though it yeah. feels like it's from outside, but it's not from outside, but it's really from within. But it feels like, all right, this is not, there's no way I wrote this. And little by little, you know, everybody has their 
beginning phases of when they first wrote poetry, it was always corny or cringy or just didn't make <laughs> sense. Or it was always yep. kind of like, 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 oh, okay, like I wrote this, but then little by little, your vocabulary enhances from time to time. And this started for me in uh, junior high school, I guess you can say. Yeah, junior high school. I just picked up a pen. Were day. you? Were you writing primarily in English or Spanish at the time? Oh no, yeah, English. Like... Eng um, I I always wrote English. My father was Spanish. Um, he uh, like that was the that was the barrier between us was always language. Um, I could communicate with him in Spanish, but sometimes because my Spanish is not that great, it was like there was always a communication barrier, if that makes sense. Because whatever yep. I wanted yeah. to say didn't come out the way I wanted to, and it comes off as something else when it's not. And that was always a frustrating thing for me. But yeah, that's how poetry has started for me. But it's interesting because I like to think maybe when my son gets older, maybe that's a thing where he'll probably see me do something and then his curiosity comes in. Because I think that's what it is too. I think after he passed away, I think the inspiration to write poetry again, because I didn't write for a long time. I feel like when he passed away in 2018, I think that's when my father really, like something inside of me kind of like, seeded there was like a seed i guess i, I really don't yeah, know how to explain absolutely. that yeah and, that makes complete sense yeah and yeah, it gave me inspiration yeah yeah it gave me inspiration and then here we are having a conversation on a podcast so i'm like okay i guess some his his creativity i guess got into me and somehow it just created this platform so but it's not really about me but you know yeah, yeah but i i get you though um so i wanted to talk about your book high water like absolutely tell me, tell me about the cover why did you call it high water and why did you choose uh why did you choose this cover and what was it about it like talk to me about that absolutely so the um the the book title high water comes from the the old classic phrase come hell or high water I think mm. probably a lot of us have, have heard that phrase. Yes. Um, and that's just kind of been like a psych up speech for me for a long time, for, for so much of my life, actually. That's kind of been a, you know, anytime that the the that I'm faced with any kind of a challenge, I'll kind of look myself in the mirror and say, come hell or high water, we're going to get through this um, kind of thing. Um, and so added to that then um, was kind of a joke that I had actually with my parents growing up that we were fascinated um, by the differences in road signs that you would see in different places all across the country. So, um, for example, if it's a if it's a crowded neighborhood where I grew up, the sign says slow children. And we've also seen ones in other neighborhoods that say thickly settled and a whole bunch of other sort of various different road signs. And and that just kind of became a little joke that to this day is sort of still a joke with with my parents, where if we see like a weird road sign that we'd never seen before, you know, we'll like text it to each other or something like that. Um, so I guess the the image on the cover um, was kind of a little bit of a tribute to to, you know, that that positive memory from from my childhood. Um, and then the the actual title itself, High Water, was just borrowed from how much I tend to use the phrase come hell or high water as kind of a mantra to to help myself get through difficult and challenging situations. Um, and there's a lot of complexities um, in terms of kind of family relationship in the book itself. My relationship with my family hasn't always been great. Um, and so the book is a lot of sort of the story of me working through that and a lot of the story of kind of me me working through how to really reconnect with with my family from the the times when that relationship was struggling and was so the, you know, come hell or high water, I'll, I'll get back to, to being on good terms with them. Um, and visually, you know, the cover kind of has the reflection of the sign in it as well. And so that's kind of also meant to be a little bit of, of symbolism of kind of 
basically inner work, you know, the inner work that we're all doing to kind of help ourselves heal a little bit and how, how much that's not necessarily something that's real or tangible to explain to other people. But, but, you know, you look at yourself in the mirror, you see your reflection of yourself and, and the reflection versus what's going on inside you can be kind of two very different and a um, different things. So the, the whole cover, the whole title, the whole thing has kind of a, you know, a long story, um, behind it. And, um, David, who did my cover, did a great job. He was very patient with me. His name is um, featured in the back of the book. He's a great cover artist. If any poets are looking for them out there, I think you can track him down on his website and um, reach out to him. And then um, Stephanie Lamb and Dylan Webster at Quill Keepers just built me an absolutely beautiful book. It was truly, truly one of the best experiences I've ever had in my life, if not the best experience I've had thus far in my life to, to work with them, to build a book i mean what a wow. tremendous and monumental thing to do no i get that and um, i've known stephanie for so so long so yeah she's definitely a great friend of mine and she really does care about you know whatever it is that you know whatever makes the the the, the reader and also what makes the the author happy to like what you know because she's all about what your vision is kind of thing yeah for sure um so how did how did this come about as far as like meeting stephanie and meeting cool keepers like how did that start for you yeah so um i actually so that i think is sort of a a, a, a funny there's a funny story essentially um there so this was um around october and november of last year around october november of of 2022 um that i started submitting my poetry after a, a long i mean 12 plus years of not even ever trying to submit my poetry i i i really kind of gave up on poetry and you know again you're a poet and the people you talk to like this isn't easy i mean you know, the, 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 um, the creative labor itself is challenging. Again, getting back into what I said a second ago about how much inner work it is, you know, even if you aren't necessarily a confessional poet, we're often using poetry as a place to really work through a lot of painful things that we have, be it either something that's happened to us personally or something that's happening out there in the world. And so that in and of itself is really kind of mentally, emotionally, and spiritually exhausting work. And if you're you know, out there working in the nine to five or whatever your shift is to pay your bills, you don't necessarily have the energy to then sit there for hours. As I, I, I always call it staring at the wall because, you know, you spend so much of your time kind of just sitting there staring, trying to think through whatever it is you're thinking through. Um, and so I had given up on it for, for years. I, you know, needed to just focus on paying bills and, and um, kind of building, you know, I had moved here to Washington, D.C. and married my husband, building our, our life you know, together and, and poetry kind of went away. And, um, and I had a sort of renaissance and decided that I would start submitting my poetry again, um, about a year ago this time, and was just submitting everywhere I possibly could. And for those of us who've been through it, you know, you kind of, you know, for every 20 submissions you make, you get 20 rejections, or, yeah. you know, whatever the, the eternal, the you know, infinity pattern of doing that. Um, and that's exactly what was happening. I was just getting rejection after rejection after rejection. Um, for high water. And so now I said, there's gonna be a funny story. So um, finally, I saw what I saw was actually unsubmittable that Quill Keepers had a listing for a critique review. And I thought to myself, boy, I should just have that done. Like, I, you know, I should have a critique review done for this. I'm really only submitting it without having had any major feedback other than from a handful of my friends who mostly mm, told me it's great, you know? Yeah. You. And so I, yeah, I was like, I need to get professional feedback on this. Um, and so I submitted to their critique review. Um, and shortly after submitting to their critique review, um, I got my response from Dylan Webster, who also um, works with them, also a, a brilliant poet in his own right. 
Um, and he really loved it, absolutely adored it. And he said to me, with your permission, I'd like to enter you into our contest. And I didn't mm. even go and look at anything. I just responded to his email and said, yes, enter me in your contest. And I didn't even know what the contest was. I had absolutely, you know, just, yes, do it. So, you know, if somebody likes it. I got to like take this opportunity um, with it. And I went to the goalkeeper's website and they actually didn't have a contest listed on the website at that moment. And so I was like, huh, that's funny. I still have no idea what the contest is, but that's okay. Um, and a few weeks went by then while they were working through the contest. And then suddenly, lo and behold, it might have been um, might have been January 4th of this year. I can't remember the exact date. I should, I should know that. You would think I would. Um, but it was right early January of this year, of 2023, that I got the email from Stephanie in which she told me that I was one of the contest winners. Oh, wow. Um, Right. Yeah. Well, but the thing that was so hilarious about it was at the moment that I got that email from her, I still didn't know what contest it was. <laughs> yeah, that's weird. You know, it's funny as you're saying that I'm visualizing it at the same time. I'm like, yeah. okay, where the hell is this freaking contest? Okay. Oh, yeah. I won, but I don't know what I won. But it's like, like yeah. you won money, but I don't know where the money I won it from. Like, wait, what? Yeah. And, What's we and I had... I really had no idea for um, for a couple of days what it was. And I, I mean, I was sitting on the couch beside my husband when that email came through and I just, you know, started sobbing immediately. I mean, you know, happy tears, obviously, because it was just the greatest, you know, moment of my life. Um, and I think I just kept saying, I want a contest. They're going to publish my book. I want a contest. And he kept saying, what contest? And I kept saying, I don't know. That's <laughs> correct. Wow. <laughs> Um, and obviously it was for their chapbook contest for their seasonal chapbook contest. You know, I, I should know that, but in real wow. time in that moment, I actually had no idea what, I don't know if Stephanie and Dolan know that story. I don't oh, think well, you know Stephanie what? So you know what? They're going to know now when this episode releases. Yes. Don't know now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when they listen to this I actually love that. I, lo I, I love that story. I love that that's kind of my poet origin story. There's just this kind of bumbling chaos to it that just is so authentic to me. And I adore, I adore that. I was thrilled that it happened that way, that it happened with, with that kind of, that kind of a little bit of chaos to it with it. I've been, that's, I, I had almost been on a journey of understanding how to kind of work with chaos as a muse. And kind of under, you know, several of my friends who are painters had been actually one of my friends who's a watercolor painter. She gave me a great sort of analogy where she she said to me, you know, the thing about watercolor is that it's not your job to figure out where the, the color is going to go, that you just need to touch the brush onto the page and the color will go where it's supposed to. Wow. And um, oh, right. Yeah. Those, and that ha that's been sort of an analogy to writing poetry that has been something really important to me to to remember is that in all those moments where we're really obsessing over the placement of the words on the page and of course we do need to do that like that you know that is a major component of poetry but but you know trying to just remember i need to take a breath and relax and the words will tell me where they need to go but you know so so that sort of chaotic origin to how the book came about i felt was was kind of you know on theme with with understanding our muses and understanding our relationship with the process right well I, I i'm just trying to process everything you just said and it's wow that's uh wow okay so as far as questions i don't know where to begin because this was really good stuff wow um wow so uh well i'm, I'm kind of speechless right now and no i well that's I, okay i won't edit this out i'm actually gonna leave this here because <laughs> it's so authentic so 
text he I'm glad I got to I'm very so. glad I got to tell that story I'm thrilled I got to tell that story actually I was hoping you would ask me that because like I said I I wasn't sure if I had ever told Stephanie and Dylan that and I think it's such a sort of like comedic but also just really sort of joyful and delightful story about wow. about me 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 winning a contest and not knowing what what contest it was What's for a moment. God? It reminds me of that like it reminds me of that illustration with the whole where is it? Where yes. Are you? <laughs> oh god, I think it's uh oh my god, if you know the comedian Dane Cook, he made like a oh, joke yeah. about a BNE breaking and entering, but no one at he, no one steals anything. He's like, "What did he steal? What did he steal? I want a divorce because this guy keeps coming to my house. Where is this guy?" And that's what that reminds me of. Where's this yeah. contest? Well, yep. I don't know. I want a divorce because I don't know the contest. <laughs> <So>, yep. <laughs> oh my god! But that's a phenomenal. See, but that's what I'm saying. This is what stories are made of. I love that. Absolutely. Yeah. It's 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 little stories like that that be like, wow, you know, that's a very interesting situation. And now you know we get we get to talk about it now, which is great, you know. Um, so for those who don't know how your poetry is, would you care to read one of your pieces to us? Absolutely, I will. I and I let's see if I can even get I, the last time I tried to read it, I almost started crying. Um, but I I'm going to to read. Um, so this is one of my very personal favorite um poems in the book and this is um as i said to you a second ago um a central theme in the book is really the story about me kind of working through some of the dysfunction that i had with my family and with my parents in in particular um and i you know i i kind of went on to become a, a rebellious teenager and, and a, a rebellious 20 something i'm in my 40s um right now and so i'm getting in a much better place with my parents and a lot of that has also come from sort of getting away from them, getting some distance um, from them. I'm an only child, um, you know, and, and so getting a little bit of distance and having some space. And most importantly, a lot of that sort of healing journey has also come from James, from my husband, who who really, truly just is my my greatest person um, in the world. And so I'm going to, to read the poem Horses um, for you from the book. Um, and this poem is one of my favorites because it, it's such a story of healing. And it's such a story of of um, how long and slow that process is. So I will read horses awesome. for you. Horses. I'm visiting the horses, he tells me on the phone. It's Christmas and I am, as always, visiting my parents. He is, as always, alone on Christmas. My husband, who is patient and kind and forgiving. He did not grow up with horses and I grew up afraid of their memory. When the horse bit me, I was not afraid of it, but my mother was, and held me so tight it hurt and told me I could never see the horses again. Years later, I am married to a patient and kind and forgiving man who took me to visit the horses and held my hand gently when I was afraid. Now he visits the horses when he is alone. He is alone at Christmas while I visit my parents who insist that I talk about the horses as if they own the horses and I am borrowing them. You never liked horses, my mother says tightly. My husband brings carrots this time and the horses nip his pockets and lick the salt from his fingers. I teach him to breathe into their nostrils. He knows their sounds and listens to their moods. They have learned to trust him through kindness and patience and forgiveness and he to trust them too. There is one lost and tormented horse, and she will nuzzle me when I stroke her, gently, frightened. 
I do not tell my parents that he visits the horses alone. They know he is alone at Christmas. I go home at Christmas to have them tell me what I can never do, what I could never do. Together, we visit the horses, my husband and I. When I am afraid, he is patient and kind and forgiving. Eventually, I stop telling my parents about the horses. This year, I will stay with my husband at Christmas. Wow. Oh, my that's God. That's that poem. Wow. And that's really a tribute to James. That's that's one of And my whole book is even just dedicated to him, but that's very much so a poem that helps to illustrate and tell the story of the role that he's played in my life and, and how wow. much his his faith in me and his love in me has been freeing for me, if you will. Wow. That, wow. Thank you, James. We appreciate you. <laughs> I'll make sure I pass that on to him. Oh, my God. Um. Wow. What, uh, so there's this joke on the community, right? Um, I had went live with a guy named Scott Lodotti, and he wrote like a piece he was reading, and the last sentence flabbergasted me so much that I got like pretty much lost it. And yeah. there was somebody on the audience that, that said, "Oh, Andy's having a poetry gasm," and they made a graphic <laughs> of me. <laughs> Of me getting hype, an actual graphic, and it says hashtag poetry gasm, and I'm just like, oh my god! But this is how I feel right now. It's like, oh snap! I'm legitimately having a poetry gasm because that is, oh my god! Like I love. You gotta talk. You gotta tell me more about the horses. I'm very intrigued to know about what what. Tell me about the horses. I, I need to know more <laughs> about the horses. I have to know. Uh so there, so one of the really great um, public resources um, here in Washington D.C., made by the, maintained by the um, National Park Service here, is the Rock Creek Park Horse Center. Um, that is both a private barn and then um, you know where people who like own horses can um, can I think rent out you know stalls for it, which I'm sure you know cost an absolute fortune. But um, they also do have um, horses where you know you can like book a. a, a um, ride on the horses and they take you kind of as a part of a group all through Rock Creek Park. Rock Creek Park is one of the really wonderful national parks that actually basically runs the entire length of Washington, D.C. and and just an absolutely beautiful and incredible green space and one of the the tremendous blessings of, of living in this great city. Um, and somehow years ago, James and I had just kind of gotten started going over to visit the horses, just, you know, going over to see them and, and to, to be around them. And, you know, I'm a great nature lover and a great animal lover and, and, um, you know, love to take advantage of the public resources that we have in this area. And it just kind of became a little thing that we would do from time to time if there was kind of nothing else going on. And there's beautiful trails that you can walk around there. And, um, and so that just kind of became this thing that we did. And, um, and that po particular poem kind of starts out with, you know, it starts out with the line, I'm visiting the horses, he tells me on the phone, which was a true story behind how I started writing that poem, which was when I called him one afternoon. And that was what he was doing. He just happened to be because he was home alone. And you just went over to go visit the horses to be to be around them. But but those are the horses. I actually haven't been over there in um, actually probably a couple of years. But he and I were just saying that now that it's beautiful fall weather that we should, you know, pack up some carrots and some peppermints and go over and and see those big beautiful animals they're remarkable animals i mean they're just incredible to be around and and so powerful and so strong and and so emotional as well um you know and and um and so that that's just kind of been a little thing that he and i have done over the years wow 
Now, because you because every time because you talk about horses, I also think about Central Park. Because Central Park has horses everywhere, like the yeah. horse and carriage thing, and that's what I was yep. thinking about for sure. Um, oh man, okay, I'm just trying to gather my thoughts here because this is really good stuff. Oh my god, absolutely. I hope, and if it's if it's on like your social media, if the the poetry gasm meme is on your social media somewhere, yeah, I'm gonna is. have to track it down. Yeah, yes, it is. And that's such a it's that's such a. I mean, that's such a great word to describe it, but also just, I mean, it's just the coolest feeling, isn't it? Like when you yes. read a poem or you hear a poem and it just sort of rocks you to your core. Like it's just the neatest feeling in the world when when that happens. And and you just kind of, you know, and not, you know, almost knocks the wind out of you and, and stuff like that. It's just, it's such a great experience and such a tremendous yeah. gift to, to have that happen. Yeah, and um. Yeah, everything you said is so true. And then um, next, well, I mean, it's it's October twelfth when this episode is recorded. But on 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 December, um, December on October twentieth, that's next Friday. Um, my platform is hosting an in person open mic, so we have different people from different states actually coming through to perform. And I'm like, oh man, it's gonna be crazy because you know we always do the virtual in um open mics, and you know. Because it's easier to do that, but to do an in-person event at this place called Shorties, that's going to be very interesting now because I'm like, okay, I've never done this before. And this is our first time doing this to engage with pretty much everyone we interact with in the community. and But now we get to hear it in person. So I, I can just imagine, like, if this is what it is here, I can just imagine in person might even be like, oh, my God. Like, this is like times 10 to the second power. Yeah, it absolutely is. Are you um, someone personally who has a lot of experience with um, performing at open mics or performing no, to an audience? I'll, I'll be honest with you. I The only time I actually performed in, in front of a people was back in school when I was in um, high school and they had like a talent show. And I read a piece called The Lover After Me. <laughs> that was the first and only time I've ever um did that even though eventually i want to kind of get out of my comfort zone and eventually i'd like to like start doing the open mics and i think like maybe like me hosting my first open mic i think if i i don't know because my co-host angela's looking at me like oh you're not gonna perform i'm like no i mean i'm just <laughs> It's not really about me, but then she's like begging for me to prefer, to, to 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 read a piece. I mean, I'll think about it. You I can mean, tell you can tell Angela you can tell Angela that I got I got her back here. I think you should absolutely stand up and and read a piece. And I was so I um had always been absolutely terrified of it. I mean, just I have terrible stage fright. I mean, you know the sort of physical symptoms that you get from it, where I really feel like I'm almost gonna faint or something like that. Mm. Um, and so I had never been willing to do it. And I really think, I mean, I, I truly think that some of our bravest and most powerful poets are like the slam poets and, and the ones who do that kind of poetry. I just am awestruck by it when you see a slam poetry competition or something. Yeah. I just, yeah, I think it's honestly one of the most remarkable art forms in, in the world and the intelligence and the confidence that has to go in to something like a slam poetry competition will just always blow my mind for all of eternity. But I, um, so as a, a celebration of my book coming out, um, I, I um, scheduled and hosted an event at the wonderful books, um, bookstore in the DC area called Busboys and Poets mm. um, and, and um, had a terrific experience there. And each of their different locations have these really great 
um, state, private stage settings. Um, and I just, I actually just decided to do it. I shelled out a chunk of change and we just threw a whole party. We got it catered. I got some drink tickets for everyone. I said, you know what? It's my book. I'm just, you know, how often do I get to do this? I'm going to mm. do that. And I'm, and, and, um, so many of my friends and family and neighbor, I mean, people that like my, you know, my postal carrier came, I mean, it was like, you know, people wow. that just like so many people across my life came. And so I got up on the stage and look, I was just a sea of people, um, you know, up there. It's my first time ever being on stage, reading my poetry and, and um, talking. And Andy, I loved it. I had a wonderful time. Like, I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed wow. the experience of doing it. I did not think I would. I absolutely, um, absolutely did not think I would. But I really enjoyed it. And um, I'm very proud to say I got a lot of good feedback, that I got a lot of people who said that, that they were, you know, holding their breath at times, that they were just absolutely wrapped. Um, and wow. so I haven't, I haven't done one since, um, but I'm sort of actively in the process right now of trying to schedule a couple other um, reading events because I kind of want to try it again. I want to see if it was just the rush from it being, you know, my first ever, um, you know, or, mm. or if I really do just genuinely enjoy it as much as I do. So if I can do it, Annie, you can do it. You can, you yeah, can get up on that stage. Yeah, that's what Angela <laughs> tells me. Yeah. Yeah, because you know what she does? Because she lives in Ohio, right? So I met her a few times oh. here and um, she, um, She's been to Pennsylvania. She's been to Nashville. She's been to New Jersey. She's been to New York. She's been like, and she's done open mics too, just for the hell of it. And I'm just like, she even did, she's not a comedian or anything, but she's done like dorky stuff. Then, but yet people were laughing. They're like, oh my God, like she's actually pretty funny, even though like she wasn't trying to be funny, but it just it actually just happened. I'm like, wait, I did comedy for the first time. I'm like, yo, that's crazy, but that's so cool. <laughs> so I think, yeah, like, like, but even with what you're saying, like, she's never done that before until, like, literally until me and her started doing pretty much business together in January of this year. So it's so interesting. Like, whatever shell she was in, I guess somehow doing this platform with me has got her out of her comfort zone of so yeah pretty much broke her out of her shell but it's just so interesting how like like you said the adrenaline rush i don't know i'll, yeah. I'll think about it i'll think about it though i have to ask quickly um where in ohio does angela live which i'm asking because i was um, actually born, I, believe... I was born and raised in columbus ah uh, okay i'll let her know that um if i'm not mistaken <laughs> i believe she's in cleveland i think she's cleveland because That's I know another city. person. I know another person named Chrissy Provenzano. She lives. She's from a Allerton. Am I saying that right? Arlington. Allerton. It's also the letter A. I I forget how to pronounce. No, that. it's okay. Might be Akron or Allentown. Well, Allentown's Pennsylvania, unless there is one in Ohio. But that's okay. That that I just. I don't know if it's Aller Allerton, something like that. It's in Ohio. I know it's in Ohio. I know it's in Ohio. It'll come. It'll come to me when I get the chance. Yeah. But anyway, but yeah, but she's originally from Cleveland, if I'm not mistaken. Excellent. Well, I'm always happy to hear about more Ohio-born poets. That that makes me happy. But you know what's crazy? But she she you know what's crazy? Cause she's never done an open mic in Cleveland. She said, "Nah, I don't care about my town." But then she ended up doing one recently, and I'm like, "Ah, so what happened? What made you change your mind?" And it was just one of those like. She said, you know what, screw it, whatever. She was with her, she calls it, she calls her, her um, her work wife. So I guess yeah. pushing her. So I was just like, <laughs> okay, so you did a thing in, in um, Cleveland. Awesome. All right. I, th 
I think if you've moved away from your hometown, um, you know, for the people who kind of have have sort of gone through that experience, it's a very transformative experience because you do kind of end up sort of building this almost entire new identity. Um, and so if you if you either return to your hometown or are still living there, um, you know, standing up in front of an audience of people who've known you, like since you were in diapers, it just I think feels really vulnerable, you know, like mm. there's something about, yeah, there's something about that. And especially again, if any aspect of your poetry leans towards anything confessional, you know, there's there, you know, if you're, if you're reading in front of an audience of people who've maybe only known you and you're, you know, full adulthood and you're talking about something from your childhood, it, somehow that feels a little more protected. But if you're reading to an audience of people who've known you since you were a little baby, then then there's maybe a, like an added layer of vulnerability to that somehow. Like these people yeah. live. Yeah, these people live through these stories. They remember these stories. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. That may oh, and by the way, it's um, Akron, yeah, Ohio. I figured it was Akron. Yep. <laughs> yeah, that's where my friend Kristen is from. I don't know where she lives. I know she lives in Ohio, but I don't know where she is now. But before but that is where she's from. She's from Akron, Ohio. So um, I've I don't know anybody in Cincinnati, but I always hear bad things about Cincinnati. But yeah. <laughs> anyway, I always make fun of Angela for that. I was like, oh, so you're not from Cincinnati, right? Okay, cool. I don't know. They call it Scum City, I guess. I, I don't yep. know how true that is, but I was like, okay. <laughs> but um, yeah, but yeah, but it's it's just been a pleasure to um to meet her and to really learn a lot about entrepreneurship too through her because it's like. Um, you know, I, I've done this platform for such a long time. I've rebranded this probably twice already. It's like my third time rebranding this. And it's, it's like they say third time's the charm. And that's really what it is at this point. I think you're doing a great job so far. I'm thrilled to be here. No, no thank you. Thank you so much for that. Um, so I'm going to switch, um, switch gears a little bit. Cause, um, I still want to talk about your book and I want to talk about your pieces, and um, there's one piece that um, I wanted to ask you about, and it was called the San Juan after the hurricanes. Talk to me yes. about that. Absolutely. So um, when um, Hurricane Maria um, passed, oh God, what year was that? Was that 2018? When the hurricanes passed through and San Juan just got absolutely, um, well, the whole island of Puerto Rico just got absolutely attacked by those hurricanes. Um, my husband got sent down to do support work actually for the, the different um, aid organizations that were down there. And so we ended up down there living down there in San Juan pretty quickly in the aftermath of those hurricanes. And so it mm -hmm. was kind of like getting dropped into, you know, just this poor, terrible flattened island um, with it. And it was a deeply emotional experience for a lot of reasons. And one, because we were just witnessing what was suffering happening? What were people who had lost their entire home and, you know, things like that. And so, so I had kind of that happening. Um, next part of it was that I had my husband who was really in the work of trying to figure out how to support these people. So I had that kind of sort of interpersonal aspect of trying to support him as a partner and, um, and as a person. And then the sort of final um, sort of layer of that, that I was dealing with was also just trying to figure out how to kind of make a home there and how to kind of feel like I was at home there. And that particular experience, that that experience of, um, of trying to figure out how to make a home there um, wasn't anything that I was necessarily um, really talking about with anybody, because of course, the more infinitely more pressing issues were, you know, helping the, the Puerto Rican people um, down there. Um, but it was very much so something 
personal to me and something that I was experiencing every day um, while I was there. And so the poem, San Juan After the Hurricanes, is really where I worked that out a little bit, where I worked out what it felt like to build a home in this this new place for me that was very different from that. Again, I grew up in Ohio. I didn't grow up on a tropical island. You know, these right. these were not the these weren't the flowers that I had seen. These weren't the trees that I had seen. These weren't the sounds, um, you know, that that I had seen around me. And so, sort of adjusting to those and learning learning how to do that um, juxtaposed against kind of the suffering that I was seeing from from the people who were dealing with the destructions from the hurricanes and then also from the emotional experience that my husband was going through. So San Juan After the Hurricanes is, is kind of the poem um, about my experience of trying to connect with the island as a home. Wow. Um, right oh, there. Yeah. Wow. Okay, so before I ask you more about um, San Juan, uh, would you... Uh, Bleh, I can't even talk. I'm so sorry. English. <laughs> no, um, so <laughs> Do you want me to read not... it? Yes, please. Thank you. I don't know why. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah. my God. No. Yeah, that's fine. I will read it. I have it right here. San Juan after the hurricanes. I was not born here, but I was asked to live here. Asked to help those who were born here after they lost everything, including hope. Hope is the hardest thing to get back. Hope has a relationship with home. Who are you when you don't have a home? This was a paradise where I made myself eat papaya for breakfast every morning wearing nothing but a sarong. All I wanted was oatmeal and sweatpants. The koki called to me like the familiar every night. Their song resetting my pulse, quickened by the fireworks, the cats in heat, the wind off the water whipping through, passing over my bare skin with the reminder of a spirit they call Horakan. The candles in the grocery store mean a kind of magic I do not know. I collect Mogenuvia flowers. Their petals are tissue-like, and I am homesick for the velvet of my roses. Once, the waves were too much too constant and eternal, and I had to close the windows. In the silence, I could exist. I could be anywhere in the world. Home has a relationship with hope. Wow. I love that. Home has a relationship with hope. What that line is interesting. Like, so tell me, talk to me about that. Have um, home having a relationship with hope. Like, how, like talk to me about that. Cause that's a very interesting line. Yeah. And so that, um, that line was really the line um, that I think summed up kind of those three sort of layers of what I was dealing with when I lived there. So the, you know, the first and most fundamental thing that I was dealing with there was the best ways to support the Puerto Rican people. The second thing that I was dealing with right there was the best way to support my husband. And the last thing that I was dealing with there was really kind of the best way to support myself, you know, mm. um, in, in this, this new environment to me. Um, and in each of those cases, it really fundamentally came down to the issue of home and the issue of hope to dealing with the Puerto Rican people who had lost homes and therefore were struggling with maintaining a feeling of hope, dealing with my husband who was trying to figure out how to get their homes back and therefore struggling with the issue of hope and then dealing with me trying to figure out how to create a home there and hoping I would eventually do that. And, and so I, I, any way you look at it in kind of the three layers of things I was dealing with in that moment of my life, I was really dealing with the kind of um, exchange and relationship that happens between home and hope. Um, and so that particular last line, and I don't know um, if you noticed that, the, that um, earlier in the poem, 
I say hope is the hardest thing to get back. Hope has a relationship mm. with home. And then I yeah. actually do kind of reverse those words a little later. Home has a relationship um, with hope. And, and um, I think that kind of tells a little bit of the story of, of witnessing that exchange between those two concepts between, you know, between and, a, you know, a, a, and, and home is a very material thing versus hope, which is this very sort of, you know, metaphysical, spiritual, whatever you, whatever emotional, you know, whatever word you want to call it um, thing. And, and so um, that last line um, is really about recognizing that as long as you have a place where you can be hopeful, um, you are going to kind of be okay. Like that, you know, like that, like it's, I mean, that's that proverbial don't have a loose side of hope, but as long as you always have hope um, kind of thing. So that's kind of that poem and that, um, that story there wow i I love that and oh man you know it's funny too because when you're going through tough times yeah hope is hard to get back or to find for that matter because there's some people who don't know what hope looks like and then to 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 have hope in something that would become something greater sometimes people don't know what that looks like and then it's like well i don't even know what that looks like right so i don't have any hope that everything anything's gonna change it's yeah, always going to be this one thing, right? Because, yeah. um, because I, I know for me, because uh, my ch- I had a rough childhood myself, so it always felt like there was no hope for me that I was going to be independent, that I was always going to live with my parents, I was always going to be with them and i was never gonna have a social life and everybody else had it together and all this other stuff but also i also came from a time and especially in hispanic culture they don't you know your emotions are not really allowed and you kind of have to just shut up and just keep moving and if you keep things bottled up inside it's like a, a a whole you know like you could only put so much sand inside of a bottle until it blows up if that if if it you know, completely I, makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Makes yeah. complete sense. And it's interesting. It's even more interesting, Andy, to consider the fact, you know, going back to this idea that there's sort of an exchange that goes on between home and hope. It's interesting to think about what your relationship with hope with hope was like during sort of that period of living with your parents in your parents' home and what your relationship with hope, I'm assuming you, you live in your own home now. I'm assuming, I suppose I shouldn't assume that, you know, but what your relationship with hope is like, you know, you you have that and it just there's such an exchange that goes on between hope and home and i i think it's a really fascinating sort of thing to always be thinking about is the relationship between hope and home that that exists and it's interesting this is such a good topic itself to just that alone is like an amazing topic because there's so many ways so many directions you could take that too you know you know i think i I mean I, i told angela i'm not a prompt guy i don't really like prompts but I might use that line as a prompt. I'm just saying. Yeah. Like, yeah. I, no, I, yeah, I think it's one, it's one I work with a lot in, mm. um, in my poetry, especially we, um, my husband and I have the extraordinary privilege to do a lot of traveling. Um, mm. And so we were often away from home for fairly long periods of time. And so again, that sort of experience of building a home in a place that really mm. isn't your home is something that I have to return to a lot. And one of my other favorite things that I like to, um, to say is that home is a feeling, not a place. And that's always Amen. something that I try to, yeah, I really try to fixate on that. And I really try to like keep that going with myself. And, mm. and, um, and I, I think that that 
can be at least for me personally a really valuable thing for me to remember again that as long wow. as i as long as i remember that home is a feeling not a place as long as i remember that i feel like i'm kind of always going to be okay you know that that i that i have that wow i that you're just hitting the nail on the coffin that's so true and um Wow, because it's true. A, a home is a feeling. It's not a place. I mean, a, a, yeah. a, you live in a house. That's a place you live in. But what you build in that house is what determines the atmosphere of the home, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Um, yep. Makes and, complete sense. And, yep. I think, and I think in that same way, like, like see, because home to me would be, it's not the four walls of my where I live, right? My apartment or whatever. The four, um, the, the home to me would be like me, my wife, my son, and in my case, because I'm a, I'm a born again Christian, you know, I'm a, you know, it's Jesus at the center of that, right? He's the one that holds the mm -hmm. foundation on the floor. He's the one that provides the roof over our heads, as far as like who we look up to when we're in distress or having hope. So that's the hope we look for when things don't make sense or we need answers. Like, okay, Lord, what do you want from us? What do you need? Like, what, what, what do you need me to know? What lesson do I have to learn? Or, you know, whatever the case is. And, you know, I'm always a firm believer of God uses people to talk to us. And um, I feel like in that same way, um, that's what home should be, right? Because intimacy um, is not always a sexual thing. Intimacy is also yeah. a relational with thing. With your family. Yeah, yes. with your family. Yeah. Yeah, and I think in that same way, hope has a relationship with home. I think that's what intimacy is too, because because I feel like without home, you can't really have hope. If that makes sense, I, I don't completely. Know. So that's yeah. um that's very fascinating, very very fascinating. Um, so we are damn this. I ain't gonna lie, this hour literally went fast. <laughs> Good. I'm glad. I hope that means that it was it was fun and was oh a good my conversation. God, yes. I mean, yeah. I wish I could go longer, but no. Um, because we are almost towards the end, so um, I always end with this question. I always, you know, because this is a very important thing. So when we're not here anymore, right? We're not in this life anymore. Um, my question is, what impact? What legacy? What would you like to leave behind that when people hear? Carrie Carter, what would you want them to remember you by? What impact would you l love to leave after you're not here no more? That is an absolutely wonderful question. I it's a great question. I love that you asked that. And I think, um, I think if I could leave any major legacy, the legacy would be take the time to figure out how to be authentic. I th I think that's my. I think that especially these days in a world that's so dominated by the sort of speed in which we, we share ourselves through things like social media and, and, um, and everything that um, we're often just kind of desperately and frantically trying to figure out how to express ourselves. And so it often loses, loses the authentic authenticity. We're often just sort of performing or, or recreating something else that we've seen. And, you know, I was I was 41 years old when I published my first book, and mm. and so I'm not you know I'm never going to be on any of those 30 under 30 you know lists or any of those kinds of things. Um, but I'm also really glad that it took me this long because I think that it allowed me to really have the time to figure out how to do this in a way that's really authentic, in a way um, that's really genuine and really sincere. Um, and I think that authenticity is probably one of the most important things we can all be working towards. I think that that finding a way to be our authentic selves is is one of one of our most important legacies we can leave behind. And 
So I think if I could leave any kind of a legacy behind, and especially if I could sort of offer any, and I'm, I try to really not give much advice, what in the world do I know about anything? You know, I, <laughs> advice is always such a complicated thing, but that would be, I think, one of my one sort of, sort of bits of advice for the, the baby poets out there is, is it's okay to take your time with it. You know, just find your authentic voice and find your authentic self. Wow. Wow. And you know what? That's so true. I think that's what it is. We rush the process. And we don't allow the process because when you allow the process, then you 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 learn more, right? Because I feel like if you go everything so fast, you might miss something. I believe. Yeah, I absolutely. believe sometimes in that process, there's a lesson you could have learned if you walked a little slower. Or let's say we're so busy walking so fast that we eventually run very fast. And we don't realize, hey, we might have dropped something on the floor, but that thing you dropped on the floor could have been something that you needed that was very important. But now, like analogy speaking, that could have been some knowledge that someone gave you, but because you didn't have the time to process that knowledge, now you lost the knowledge because you didn't look back to see, oh, make sure I dropped that on the floor. Whoops. And now it's like, and it, it, that's, that's why like I feel like taking time is important. And it's true. We do live in a time where everything is fast paced. And I was just talking to a an employee at this uh, quick check by my house. And um, it was interesting because we were talking about how everything's at the fingertips now, right? There's Uber Eats. There's um, yeah. buying yep. stuff on the app, Grubhub, Seamless, um, even stores, right? Like even like like these retail stores, whether it's Target, CVS, or Walgreens, they got these, these pick and pack things where now you can order something online for it to pick up at the store or if you have the quote-unquote care pass you can have it delivered to you and there's all these things and i'm just like everything's at the finger pin at the finger um tips right and i'm not saying that's bad because convenience is good but convenience has to be good when laziness and complacency does not exist yeah. And it's also, I think, one of the, the hardest challenges of, of those kinds of, you know, of, of having that convenience that we have is that one of the only things that's really done is just make a lot of the labor invisible to us. You know, yeah. you know, you, you know, you get your Uber Eats dropped on your porch and like you just sort of miraculously have food. You aren't necessarily thinking about the person who had to like go tank up their car, had to drive mm -hmm. through traffic, had to, you know, like you and, and that sort of making the labor invisible is it, that's really the only part of it that's a problem because we should all always be really conscious and aware of the the labor that other people are putting into to making the world more accessible for us yeah yeah i definitely agree with you with that so um carrie thank you so much for having this conversation with me thank you for just you know trusting me with your story and trusting us to just you know have a great authentic conversation um yeah so guys thank you for listening to this episode thank you to everyone yeah thank you to everyone who did listen and um and i i look forward to hearing any any feedback from anybody you can find me on the socials by searching my name i'm sure yeah um, so where can we hear, find yeah. you yes tell the yeah you can so i exist on both um well, I guess it's called X these days. I'm still not used to, to X oh, these Twitter. days. I, I, would call, I would call it Twitter. Yeah. I exist on both X and Instagram. Um, and the handle is at Ancestor Regime. Like my ancestors all lined up for me. So that's A-N-C-E-S-T-O-R-R-E-G-I-M-E. -E. Or you could probably just search my name and I'm sure find me that way. And I'd love to hear from anybody. I'd love to meet some other poets. Love to hear from the poets that you've um, featured on your podcast and and have the chance to read some of their beautiful art. 
Awesome. Awesome. So thank you so much.